Welcome to Socialist Sound, a production of Seattle DSA. I'm your host, Ty Moore. This is the second half of our two-parter on the historic victory of Initiative 135, which established a new, radically democratic, tenant-led, publicly-owned social housing developer in Seattle. In part one, we looked back, reviewing the uphill fight to win the February special election. In this episode, we look forward to the coming battle to tax the rich to fully fund social housing. And we explore whether the vision of social housing largely displacing the private sector is even possible in this era of neoliberal capitalism. I'll pick up my conversation with Tiffany McCoy, where we left off. Tiffany is co-chair of House Our Neighbors, the coalition who led the fight. After Tiffany, we'll hear more from two leaders of Seattle DSA, Sydney Province and Rami Khalil, about a socialist vision for housing in Seattle and DSA's strategy to win. This podcast is only possible because hundreds of Seattle DSA members are contributing monthly to sustain my part-time position as a chapter's communication organizer and through the volunteer efforts of our ad hoc audio editing team. To make this project sustainable, to ensure this podcast continues, and to fund the position of Seattle DSA's part-time campaigns organizer, we need to increase our income by over $2,000 a month. With your support, we can build a strong socialist media in King County. Please go to seattledsa.org backslash podcast to sign up as a monthly sustainer today. Now to the second half of my conversation with Tiffany McCoy, Advocacy Director at Real Change and Co-Chair alongside Ty Reed of House Our Neighbors, the coalition which led the fight to win social housing in Seattle. DSA not only was one of our strongest signature gatherers, I don't know if I can name drop, so I just won't, but they know who they are, strongest signature gatherers, and then also just getting into those apartment buildings. Also, DSA was one of the only endorsing organizations that was out canvassing every weekend during um, GOTV. I'm sorry, get out the vote. Um, And then also hosting text bank parties and just rallying people behind this, donating money. Um, Just we, we couldn't have done it without DSA. Awesome. Well, let's switch gears and talk about your next steps. The initiative creates a new social housing developer in Seattle, but without the funding to actually build or buy any housing, um, as you've already said. So my understanding is that it only mandates 18 months of startup costs, just hiring the initial staff, et cetera. So tell me more about the politics of the fight around funding. I mean, I get maybe you know, getting through this next 45 days is going to be the priority for a little while. But pretty soon, you know, the question of the strategy to win this new funding source is going to come up. Do you think um, you'll likely be able to win that funding through a vote of city council, maybe in the fall budget? Um, Or do you have any champions there who you think are going to push it? Or are you looking at another ballot initiative to tax the rich and big business um, to create a dedicated funding for social housing in Seattle? I wish we lived in a world where we could go through the city council and pass this because initiatives are a lot of work and um, I'm still tired. But I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and that's just getting clearer to me every day, especially not in the fall. So the housing levy is up in the fall. And um, I know specifically Councilwoman Mosqueda wants to make sure that we do not touch Jumpstart and will not do any Jumpstart 
for us. So also in the fall, now we're going to have to be fighting for the CEO, the CFO. We're going to do some like workforce development stuff too. So we're going to probably have to do an initiative. Um, I will also say too, the reason that's clearer and clearer is because we are trying to already start the conversation at the state level to get access to the housing trust fund, which is the state's biggest pot of housing for affordable housing or yeah, money for affordable housing, excuse me. But right now, social housing doesn't qualify because it serves those making over 60% of the AMI. So it's just about broadening that definition. But already, already, it's just like hell no from some legislators that actually endorsed us. So no surprise, that's that's like a long, long fight. And we don't want to spend our time trying to get the state legislature to do what's right. So yeah, it's likely another initiative. We do have a progressive revenue source idea. I won't talk about it here. It's in front of our lawyer. There are two key questions. One, can we do this through an initiative and have that money be directed to the social housing developer? Mm-hmm. Can that just that that line of like money in, money out, is that legally permissible? And then second is what we're proposing truly um, an excise tax, which also today, capital gains was upheld at the Supreme Court, um, and it was considered an excise tax. So that's actually hopeful for what we want to try to do. So once we get the legal opinion, um, then, yeah, I guess we'll start. Well, actually, we're going to talk with like DSA, Washington can, like our top supporters about this fight, because we can't do it with $200,000. Yeah. There will be big money coming out against it. It's also going to be a really fun campaign if we can do it, though. And for you, what are you thinking in the timeline? I mean, to put a ballot initiative that would be up for this fall, that seems pretty unlikely given yeah, no. where we're at. So, and the housing levy. Right. So what's the timeline in your mind, best case scenario of when we'd uh, be doing this? Is this a 2024 fall, November 2024 initiative? You know, I think that that's a conversation also with like Seattle DSA, right. Washington can, labor, because I just, I don't want to wait until... November 2024. I don't, and then what those are starting, this is a, something we're not taxing right now. So then how long does it take to actually start getting the money in? And those are all years of not being able to buy buildings um, to start doing social housing. But can't, do we have the stamina and desire to do another February uh, election? I don't know. So these are February or November, but we just have to talk with strong allies before we decide. Makes sense. Makes sense. One of your policy advisors, Paul Williams, wrote an article on your website titled Public Housing for All from 2021. And early in the article, after outlining the scale of America's housing crisis, Paul had this to say, quote, getting out of this mess will take no less than 20 years. And anyone who tells you otherwise is a politician. There are immediate steps we can take to provide fast relief for those most in need, rent controls, income supports, but to fully exit our current disaster and move to something more resembling a fair society, we must do three things. Plan, spend, build. We must become the developer. So, you know, he's making the case for a public social housing developer. And I want to talk about the timeline for success here in Seattle. Paul is warning that there is no quick fix for housing. And what you were just saying points to, you know, the real challenges. But he also seems to suggest that cities 
if cities create a social housing developer and presumably fully fund them, that we could, quote, fully exit the current disaster, fully exit the housing crisis over the next couple decades. And I'll just say that based on my understanding of capitalism in this era, the whole legacy of neoliberalism, I question whether it's responsible of Paul. Um, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a DSA member. He's a socialist. I've talked to him. He's great. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm not no big smash on him. But I wonder if it's responsible to, to suggest that any lasting solutions to the housing crisis are possible within the framework of capitalism without fully socializing or, to use the word of the day, decommodifying the mm-hmm. real estate industry and housing. But clearly, there is space for some reforms, uh, even before we end capitalism. Um, if we build strong enough movements, as you've already demonstrated. So assuming you are successful over the next couple years in winning a significant new progressive tax revenue source, what is your vision for the next 10 years, the next 20 years for social housing in Seattle? What kind of scale do you think is realistically possible? How many new units of public social housing could we hope to buy or build over the next couple decades? Yeah. So something we did in the in the campaign that people really were annoyed at, but we wouldn't do it differently is when the question of how many units do you imagine coming online every year, we would say we have absolutely no idea because if we told you it would be politically smart for us to tell you this is how many we're going to do every year. But we can't back that up with any any integrity or certainty because the system is so deeply stacked against the idea of social housing that there are multiple things in the landscape that need to change. We need to get rid of like our our racist single family zoning. We need to upzone the entire city. We need to get rid of redlining. We need to make sure that we can actually build six, seven, eight story um, apartments across the entire city. Like there's there's a lot of work and we're gonna work on this all. This is a very, very long-term plan, but I just wanna be very honest about what needs to change. And this isn't even just in Seattle, this is nationwide. Like homeowners and car culture are like, the centerpiece of our economic system here in the United States and undoing that so we can actually get to what Paul's saying is going to take a long, long time. I mean, just looking at everyone coming out against like the missing middle bill, which does the smallest reform at the state level, which would be significant, don't get me wrong, but it's just there's so much like deep seated um, hostility towards anything that resembles like a social housing landscape. So we need a political movement. I know we'll get into that later. But is it responsible? You know, I actually do think it's responsible because it's being honest about what that what we're doing is not enough. Because I know one of the things I learned from this last, you know, 19 months is people truly think that what we're doing is sufficient. It's worth patting ourselves on the back for. We're going to now have like a, a billion dollar housing levy, which I think is actually a testament also to the movement we created. Um, but that's also a billion dollars that's also going to be procured through a property tax, which disproportionately hurts black, brown, and low-income families in the city of Seattle. But this is the way forward. This is this is the only way. So it is responsible for Paul and like you and me and everyone that's fighting for social housing to do this and to do it unabashedly because there is no no other way. Can these things all exist under um, capitalism to where we don't have a crisis? The only example I can point to where I can say confidently that I do think it is possible is Vienna. And it's because I was there. They do not have a homelessness crisis. Mm -hmm. They have a whole entire agency at the nation level devoted and at the city level devoted to homelessness. And then they have one to municipal housing. And because housing is seen as a right and not a commodity, 
they don't have the same issues we have here. Granted, Vienna also has, you know, retirement and um, socialized health care and a massive transit system, et cetera, et cetera. But just focusing on housing, um, this idea that we have in the U.S. of eviction, for instance, being commonplace is not at all there. The one thing you can get evicted for there easily is if you rent out your municipal flat on the private market, that will get you evicted. However, once you're evicted, it's not good luck, you're on your own. You're then immediately transferred to this other agency within the city that will get you a flat and work with you to get back, you know, into municipal housing. It's not where, and I know, I'm sorry, I know that this is like incredibly personal right now, like here in the city of Seattle, um, because of the DSA member who just had the eviction. Right. I don't. Right. So yeah, just like it shows like how broken this entire thing is. So just that's one thing in Vienna. They, they don't do that here. It's not like really like you're a piece of trash to go. And I think it's worth just yeah naming what yeah. you're ref- referencing. But yeah, it's been in the media. DSA member UC who had lost her job because of a workplace injury, um, just you know was desperate, barricaded herself in to fight eviction. And um, when the police came, when the sheriffs came to evict her, um, shots were exchanged, and then the police say she committed suicide. Um, so. You know, it shows, I think, it's just a particularly sharp and, mm-hmm. you know, horrific example of just the level of desperation that our capitalistic housing yeah. system throws people into of just, you know, she was facing homelessness and, um, and I guess, you know, chose a different path. But yeah. yeah, I think the vision we're putting forward that you're putting forward, I think, is a way out. And I, I 100% agree. And I wasn't saying, by the way, that it's uh, not responsible to to have this fight, I, would, I was questioning, you know, can we have a, a full solution? Can we fully exit the crisis without a more generalized uh, socialist system that, yeah. you know, ensures everybody a guaranteed wage, that ensures everybody guaranteed health care, all the things. Yeah. I mean, you know, Vienna at least has elements of that because of the legacy of the social welfare state, which which we'll get into. Yeah. But you traveled there. Uh, when when was your trip to, to Vienna? Uh, in September 22, so not too okay. long ago. And the statistic, um, we'll get into this a little bit more, but is over 60% of people in Vienna live in social housing. Yeah. So what was, tell me a little bit about the trip. What was, what stuck out to you? What are the lessons for yeah. here in Seattle? So you will have to tell me to stop talking because I am obsessed okay. um, with Vienna. <laughs> I talk about it every day. I mean, what stuck out there? So we met with Wiener Vonen, which is their municipal housing agency. Um, and yeah, as we were just talking briefly before about the eviction thing, like that that's so commonplace here and that you actually like incorporate the state, unsurprising actually, um, to protect your private property. Um, but the other thing there that is really uh, weird to them about the United States is this idea that like once you then make you know, a little bit more money, then you have to like go out and fend for yourself on the private market, which is what it is here. We have vendors who do not make more money because they will lose all of their benefits. Right. We we create a system of reinforcing poverty here. Um, that's not the, the case there. They actually had one of their like either mayor in Vienna or like one of their council members actually still living in their municipal housing flat where here it's like, oh, rich people shouldn't be living like that should go to someone more deserving where the idea of housing there is different. Like that is they said that's their home. Why would we ever tell them that that cannot be their home? So it's just a completely different like philosophical perspective there. And then, yeah, this idea that you would just evict someone and put them out on the street is is un 
unimaginable. As I said, they're like deep, amazing quality of life, the the green space, the the focus on the environment. I was actually really one of the things I took the most from Vienna was their intentionality around everything housing related there. They bring in architects and experts to look at every plot of land they're developing and figure out which way the building should even be set up for the most cross ventilation and the least climate impact. They actually wow. all every single building they have like this report that they bring and they look at the trajectory of climate change in the area and they realize okay in this many years this plot of land is going to be this degree Celsius. So, and then winds or whatever else they do there. Um, and then they specifically yet not only position the building that way, but put specific um, flora and fauna in to mitigate those crises. They focus on climate change in every build they do. Like it's so intentional. And we're here, you know, you have to like build this way specifically, and you're restricted in all these ways. Over there in Vienna, like the, the, the ability for creativity and ingenuity and people who are experts in architecture and landscape are actually able to like use their skill there. Mm -hmm. Where here it's about what's the cheapest thing we can get for this bid. It's the complete opposite there. Um, and actually when like a new plot is being constructed, it's the focus is not on the building and the units. The focus is on the neighborhood and the community that's created. I mean, that sounds like... Socialist planning as yes. opposed to the yes. anarchy of the market, which dominates, has dominated the real estate decisions exactly. here. You know, we don't have meaningful urban planning mm -mm. Uh, in most cities in this country. Not at all. It's, it is commonplace there. Yeah. And everything has to have a community like in order you have design competitions, too. We do not have those here. But, yeah, you have to in your design competition also persuade the public in that area that like you're going to give the best benefits for the community. So that's workspaces, places to eat, places to drink after work, have coffee. It's just all so ingenious and intentional. Well, I'm going to play this quick uh, video clip. Um, this is uh, narrated by Zoran uh, Mamdami, who is a state senator from New York, a DSA member. Um, and he's narrating this video about how socialists solve the housing crisis. And um, about four minutes, three and a half minutes in, he gets into the Vienna model. So I'm going to play this and then we'll talk about it. Housing doesn't have to be seen as a market at all. In other countries, housing is considered a fundamental right, like education or healthcare. That means the government goes to significant lengths to guarantee everyone has a home, and the market plays a much smaller role in the construction and distribution of housing. So let's hop across the pond and about 100 years back in time to take a look at just one example of how an alternative housing model got started in beautiful Red Vienna. At the end of the First World War, the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed, leaving behind a number of successor states, including modern-day Austria, home to the former imperial capital of Vienna, the fifth largest city in the world. Despite being the seat of an empire, the chaos of the war and decades of neglect had left the working class of Vienna in desperate circumstances. Inflation was rampant, jobs were scarce, social services were non-existent, and hundreds of thousands of people were crammed into decaying tenements where overcrowding, disease, and violence were rampant. So it's no surprise that in 1919, at the first elections ever held in Austria where all adult citizens could vote, the Social Democratic Party swept into power at the municipal level on the promise of dramatic social and economic reform. And they delivered. 
the new government of Vienna implemented a huge range of services, including public health care and public child care. They built high-quality hospitals, schools, and recreational facilities. But their crowning achievement was an ambitious program of social housing, what Americans call public housing, that began in 1923 and saw 60,000 new apartments constructed in the first year of its existence, built by the government and financed by taxes on the rich. But these weren't the kinds of apartments you might picture when you think of public housing in the United States. Drab, high-rises, plagued by chronic neglect and underinvestment. Residents could enjoy leafy courtyards, wide-open spaces, and plenty of natural light. They had shared laundries, state-of-the-art kitchens, food co-ops, bathhouses, pharmacies, lecture halls, schools, and swimming pools. These apartments were designed to be both beautiful to look at and beautiful to live in, fostering a sense of shared community among the people who lived there. And the best part was that because the city didn't have to worry about making a profit, just about paying off their maintenance costs, these homes were both much nicer and much cheaper than what workers had previously known. In 1926, the average rent in Viennese social housing was about just 4% of a monthly wage. The first 15 years after Austrian independence saw its capital transform from a symbol of urban blight into a beacon of socialist governance. It became known as Red Vienna, after the official color of the socialists who had pioneered these changes. And even though Red Vienna fell in 1934 when the country was seized by fascists, who did what they could to roll back social housing, that commitment to good, cheap housing remained after the Second World War. Today, an astonishing 62% of all city residents live in social housing, with the average monthly rent falling somewhere between $400 and $600 a month, with subsidies for lower-income tenants. That is a fraction of what people in America pay. Unlike in the United States, where public housing is treated as a worst-case way to house the very poor, Vienna's social housing residents are extremely diverse. Everyone except the top fifth of the population is eligible to live in social housing. This means there's broad appeal across many segments of society, which creates the foundation for its political popularity. That is how the majority of people in Vienna enjoy something that's considered almost utopian here in New York. Affordable housing that isn't just cheap, but desirable. Housing that isn't just four walls and a roof, but a real home with a sense of stability, safety, and community built in. Now, of course, this is only one example of an alternative framework for housing. And Vienna has not fully removed housing from the domain of the market. Residents still pay part of their earnings and rent to cover operational costs, and a sizable chunk of the population lives in private housing. But it's an actually existing alternative that shows us what a step toward a better world could look like. If we want to end the housing crisis, the solution has to be moving toward the full decommodification of housing. In other words, moving away from the status quo in which most people access housing by purchasing it on the market and toward a future where we guarantee high quality housing to all as a human right. So I'm going to stop it there. That video is great, by the way. Anybody who's listening should listen to the whole thing. How Socialists Solve the Housing Crisis, put out by the Gravel Institute. Excellent video. I've shown it to a lot of audiences in Tacoma as we started our Tacoma for All campaign, etc. But what struck me particularly about this story was the fact that to build social housing on the scale that was achieved in Vienna, it took a mass socialist party, a mass workers party coming to power. And they came to power in the context of a revolutionary wave that was sweeping Europe with uprisings in Germany in 1919, the Russian Revolution in 1917. You know, this was a period where capitalism was on the rocks and uh, there was a lot of 
social room created by the, these mass uprisings to to do things on a, in a radically different way than done before. So fast forward to today <laughs> in a big city like Seattle, which is basically a one-party city dominated by corporate-backed Democratic Party machine. You know, of course, that's contested here in Seattle. A lot of cities, um, you know, more progressive wing, kind of the Bernie Kratt wing of the Democratic Party. And obviously here, Shama Sawant has been the most sharp edge of that as an independent socialist. Um, though, of course, she's going to exit city council later this year. So even within that, it seems unlikely, as you said, that the mayor and the majority of the council will even agree to fund this startup new social housing developer on the scale needed, much less have the kind of political will to wage the kind of fight against big business in the city to mobilize the resources needed to build on the scale that Vienna did. So in your mind, what kind of movement, what kind of political organization do you think it will take here in Seattle to achieve social housing? Do we need our own party? Do you think uh, the fight for social housing can help bring about that kind of the, the kind of political movement we need to to bring this kind of housing into existence on the scale needed? Yeah, it's a a deeply important question and one I think about a lot. I mean, we thought about it um, during the election, and we were also honest with with voters. And as we talked about here, like just winning this is not enough. It will not get us to the level of Vienna, not even by a little bit. We need to keep fighting for all of these other changes I, I discussed. But having time from yeah election night and then just this stuff that I talked about with the city attorney and then folks at the state level balking uh, strongly against the idea of opening up the, the housing trust fund to social housing to address the housing crisis that they agree exists because of political pressure from you know the status quo. This is something that we're just going to have to spend like our whole careers working on, like not even careers, but just life and trajectory. What gives me a lot of hope is like social housing, as you know, Ty, is growing across the entire country. Like this is not just happening in isolation. People are desperate for for answers and are not at all satisfied anymore with the status quo, affordable housing or the private market, which has no restrictions whatsoever on it. So yeah, we need a massive movement. I, I mean, I would love for us to have our own party. And I think starting the way that like Tacoma for all and like we're doing and others. I mean, this week we talked to the Boston Teachers Union. We talked to Green New Deal, Green New Deal Illinois. And then we also talked to the folks in Rhode Island, um, Dan, Dan Denver. Um, that's really hopeful and exciting. And like getting all of those groups together as well to start talking about what we can push nationally, because just to get a little bit um, emotional, if I can, like, you know, the we both have kids um, and the IPCC report this past week, which I can't even bring myself to kind of look at, just like the future for our kids is like always on the forefront of my mind. And I could That's cry bleak. if I think about That's it. Bleak. To, it's so bleak. But like the only thing that gives me hope and like a hope for a better future for her and everyone is these movements and this coming together and resting power away from those who have it and won't give it and won't give a couple of dollars to this fucking developer to create housing for people who won't put actual green energy standards in anything that we're constructing because it costs too much, who won't prioritize union labor. Like it's deeply, deeply grim and we cannot depend on anyone who's in power 
at all at any level. Like this idea we got in the, um, throughout the campaign from some nonprofits, like, oh, but the federal government is going to put more aside. Build Back Better just was passed. And, oh, Section 8 is going to get reformed. And it's just like, screw you. Like you're so so completely disconnected from people on the ground. And like that's why I still work at Real Change. One of the reasons is I'm connected every day with people who are just the, the t- treated as trash of the trash um, and can stay outside and people like the government doesn't give a crap about that. Like that keeps me rooted into what's the most important and making sure we're meeting those needs. So yeah, I'm I'm hopeful we have to have a movement. We have to get away from Democrats, period. Um, I hope that the left can get its act together and not be sectarian and focus on like this part of the theory over this part of the theory. And that's the only way we can work together. I think that what you're building and what we built here is showing that there's so much commonality and let's focus on those and the vision and how we get there. And yeah, that's, that's what, I mean, my mental health would be a lot worse if I didn't have uh, how's our neighbors and what we're trying to build. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a big debate in, in DSA and on the left in general about how do we deal with this corporate two-party monopoly over politics. And you know, many, most cities, most states, frankly, it's a one-party monopoly over politics. How do we build a real political voice for working-class people? And I think you know that's struggles, that's movements, but somehow we need to coalesce that into, you know, we're probably going to do a whole other podcast on this, but this upcoming Seattle City Council election. We were just chatting uh, before. This looks kind of bad. There's not a lot of uh, rooted movement candidates that will be, even if the more progressive ones get elected, you know, how accountable will they be to working class people, to the organizations that represent working class people? Like you said, in Tacoma, what, you know, we're hoping Tacoma for All, which is, you know, initiated by DSA, but is a um, broad coalition, mm-hmm. you know, can win this tenant bill of rights next fall. But already we're talking about, um, yeah. after your victory, moving on to a social housing developer initiative modeled yeah. on yours in 2024. And can we leverage that into also mm-hmm. making a coalition that can build a platform for the city as a whole on yeah. other issues and just housing and run candidates uh, with labor, socialists, community groups, um, environmental organizations uniting to say, hey, we need a different political center of gravity, you know, kind of a proto-party type organization, at least on the city level. You know, I think that's going to be necessary here in Seattle and everywhere if we're going to achieve the kind of change we need. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Ty. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to end it. I really deeply appreciate you coming down or sitting down with me. <laughs> I came up, but sitting down with me and and talking this through. This yeah. has been a great discussion and great way to um, move this podcast, this experiment that we're doing here in Seattle DSA forward. So thanks so much, Tiffany. Absolutely. And thanks again to Seattle DSA for helping us win Initiative 135. That was Tiffany McCoy, Advocacy Director at Real Change and Co-Chair of How Is Our Neighbors. If you missed the first half of our conversation, check it out in Episode 2 of Socialist Sound. Now we'll turn to the second half of my interview with DSA leaders Sydney Province and Rami Khalil, getting their views on the fight ahead and on a socialist vision for housing. Sydney Province is a data scientist and co-chairs Seattle DSA's Housing Justice Work Group, which played a big role turning out DSA members to collect signatures and knock doors. Rami Khalil is a union teacher, a member of DSA's Reform and Revolution Caucus, 
and part of Seattle DSA's local council, the chapter's elected leadership, which kept the fight for social housing as a top chapter priority over the last year. And Washington State is a great place for them to operate, as it has the most regressive tax code in the nation. So, Absolutely. yeah, it's fantastic that the, you know you Tax get to these bastards. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic when you get to make money off of it, and you know none of those proceeds have to go to support the communities that you're ultimately harming. Yeah. Um, so that's great for them, I suppose, but not the, not that great for everyone else. Let's move on. Um, when I spoke to Tiffany McCoy, she sounded skeptical that city council could be pressured into funding social housing or passing a progressive tax, you know, whether it's on uh, real estate developers or, or business in general. And she said how our neighbors would soon be discussing with DSA and other coalition partners about the potential need for another ballot initiative, probably in 2024, um, to win a progressive revenue source. So Rami, I know you're a veteran of big fights in City Hall. I know you helped lead the successful 15 Now campaign, including the credible threat of a ballot initiative that forced Seattle City Council to become the first major city to pass a uh, 15 minimum wage. So, you know, what do you think it's going to take to win um, funding on the scale needed to build social housing on the scale needed here in Seattle? Yeah, I I think it's 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 great that I-135 passed, but as, as you said, we, we're going to need more funding because I-135 doesn't doesn't actually provide that much funding. It just has an initial setup costs. And so, so yeah, I mean, we have, as I mentioned earlier, the Seattle Times said that there's, we need 20,000 affordable housing units immediately for all the, to house all the homeless people that we currently have. Um, but I think we need much more than 20,000. We, we need to build on a, on a, on a major scale of tens of thousands to really, to really house all the ho- houseless people, but then also to bring down the rents for everyone else um, by by having a strong public option, a public public section of the of the housing market, and I think I think we have to be aware that this is going to be a battle. Like like the current city council, they're the ones that have presided over this crisis. They have not built the housing that we need. They they have been in power for years um, and not really dealt with this crisis. They've, they've talked about dealing with it. They keep saying they want to deal with the housing crisis, but they're not really dealing with it. We have, we have an enormous crisis of homelessness and, and Seattle rent just keeps skyrocketing year after year. So I don't think that the political establishment is going to be helpful in, in getting us the funding we need. And I think it is going to be a fight like Sydney talked about, like we, we need to tax the people who have the money, which is the the billionaires and and these real estate companies and the corporations, that's the that's where we have to go after that to get the money we need to actually fund housing on the scale that we need. And I don't think any of the politicians in, in City Hall, with except for Shama Sawant, she's the one socialist who has fought for this. But for the rest of them, they they have not really gone after taxing the corporations on the scale that we need to build the housing that we need. And now Shama Sawant is stepping down from City Hall. So I think the only way we're going to do it is to build a mass movement, like to build a really strong grassroots working class movement. I do think Tiffany's probably right that we need, we're probably gonna have to do this through another ballot initiative like we just did with I-135 because the city city council and the mayor aren't going to be helpful. And I think we're going to need to do a really strong grassroots campaign where we get out and educate and organize the community and mobilize and have rallies and and so forth to, to really build a strong movement. I think also 
in addition to a ballot initiative, we should be looking at getting more socialists and independents elected to city council because that would help to have not only a strong grassroots movement outside city hall, but some people inside city hall that are that are speaking up on our side and are using their positions in city hall to to build these grassroots movements. I mean, I think it's just the last point I'll say is I think it's it's telling that um, in a lot of these uh, major cities where we have these housing crises, these are blue cities like where it's like Seattle is basically a one party town. I think there's there's uh, only one Republican uh, in City Hall and, and all, the, all the rest of them are Democrats, except for uh, Kshama Sawan, who's a socialist. So I think we also, in addition to doing grassroots campaigns and ballot initiatives, we also need to look into running more socialists for office and, and even working towards building some kind of independent socialist party or, or working class party to, to really have people that are willing to go toe to toe with the establishment yeah. and with big business. I was really encouraged when I talked to Tiffany, you know, I kind of asked her a similar question. What's it going to take to win something on this scale? And, you know, we, we were talking a lot about Vienna and how they built social housing. It was the, you know, Social Democratic Party that came to power after the First World War on a revolutionary wave, you know, same era as the Russian Revolution, et cetera. And that's who initially uh, established, transformed housing into and made the public sector dominant in Vienna. Um, I said, you know, are we going to need to do something similar here? And effectively, she she agreed. And I think I'm really encouraged that it's not just DSA. I think, you know, organizations like Real Change, like How's Our Neighbors, like others, you know, there's a lot of radical folks there. And, you know, there's always debates and disagreements on strategy. And I know there have been in the course of this fight. I'm sure there will be in the future. But I think this idea that we cannot count on the Democratic Party, we cannot count on the two-party system, that working people, social movements need our own voice, our own political representation, our own political vehicles. That's a growing idea. I mean, I know in Tacoma, where we're organizing around Tacoma for All, a renter's rights campaign, there's a lot of talk. Should we do something like the Richmond Progressive Alliance? Should we translate this progressive campaign, which was sort of a, a left electoral alliance, into a more ongoing political formation to build the kind of political power that we need. Because um, I think most folks who ran How's Our Neighbors and obviously DSA understands the housing crisis is intertwined with the you know low wage crisis, is intertwined with the ecological crisis, is intertwined with all these issues. So this can be a leading edge of struggle, but can we develop these fights, the fight for funding, the fight for social housing, into a vehicle to build a wider political project in the city, I think is a is an important question and one that not only DSA I think is grappling with. Yeah, and I really agree with you that like um, it has to be a broad effort of of not just DSA, but how's our neighbors, unions, other other community groups? Absolutely. Well, Sydney, Rami, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Um, I think this is going to be an exciting show, and I'm really uh, eager to get get your words out to to our listeners. No, thank you. Thanks a lot, Ty. Appreciate it. That was Rami Khalil, an elected member of Seattle DSA's local council and Sydney province, co-chair of Seattle DSA's housing justice work group. If you found this podcast thought-provoking, if you believe, like I do, that it's important to lift up inspiring stories like this one about how working-class people can organize together and win 
then I hope you'll do your part to keep this podcast going. To maintain my part-time position as Seattle DSA's communications organizer, as well as our staff campaign organizer position, we'll need to raise over $2,000 a month for Seattle DSA in the months ahead. Go to seattledsa.org backslash podcast today to contribute what you can. Again, that's seattledsa.org backslash podcast. This was the third episode of Social Sound, a production of Seattle DSA. Thanks so much to Luke Wigren for putting in the volunteer hours to help record this episode, to Charlie Spears for ongoing support, and to Jason Corey for finding the afterwork hours to mix this audio for the episode. I'm your host, Ty Moore, and thanks for listening.